Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. He was in the world, and the world was created through Him, and yet the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Praise be to God. Anybody find that as adults it's difficult to make good friends? I mean, I hear this all the time, especially for people in their 30s, or their 20s, their 30s, or 40s. Like, it's just so hard as grown-ups to make good, close friendships. And you wonder what happened, right? When you're kids, it seems like friendship comes easily. Like, you can just be thrown in a room together, and you're going to find some friends. You throw a bunch of adults into a room together as strangers, and they're going to leave strangers most of the time. Unless you've got that one person in the room who's, like, getting everybody together and talking, it's probably going to end up with everybody walking out looking at their phones just like they went into the room, right? I was at a meeting this past Thursday. I was up at a church uh, just doing some work with them, and uh, I had Maggie with me, and I thought Maggie was going to be by herself, so I had to bring a backpack full of stuff to do just in case. And then it turned out one of the people I was meeting with brought their kids too, brought three kids. And so I was like, this is great. Maggie's got friends to play with. And so they all go into kind of the kids' room in the church, and they start playing together. And through the entire meeting, as the dad of these three kids and their grandma kept going to check on the kids in the room, I never went to check on them because I was like, Maggie's fine. But, you know, they kept going to check and make sure everything was okay. And every time they came back, they were like, oh, my gosh, those kids are getting along so well. Like, oh, I'm so glad Maggie was here and they can be free. Yeah, bring her up anytime. And that whole time I'm just thinking, man, like, why don't we do that? Why as grownups is that so stinking hard for us? It's crazy. I go to pastoral conferences and people don't talk to one another. Like, these are pastors. Like, we're all doing the same job. We're all followers of Jesus. Like, we're supposed to be the, the first followers of Jesus, right? Like, we should have the easiest time in the world getting to know one another. But you go to these conferences, and, and, and if you do strike up a conversation with somebody, and, and you're like, I actually want to stay connected to this person, it's like, it's like asking for their number is like asking, you know, that girl in high school. Like, you just, it's just like, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, like, it can feel like making friends as adults is going back to the dating game. You ever watch a show or a movie and you're like, there are two characters in the show or movie who are really into each other, but they don't know it. And you're just rooting for them the whole time and you're waiting and it takes them forever. You know, like 12 episodes in, finally, they're like admitting their feelings for each other and, and something, you know, and there's been all kinds of drama in the meantime. And you're finally like, yes, thank God. You know, we've been waiting for this now for an entire season and you're finally getting together. Like, it can feel like that's the way it is for adults. And I have this theory, and I was sharing it with our small group on Wednesday night, and, and, and I think it's right, but let me know if you think I'm wrong. I have this theory that we all really do want intimate friendships. Like, we all really do want intimate relationships. We want close friendships. We want friendships with people who are not related to us by blood, the kind of friendships where no matter what's going on in my life, I just call to catch up with you. I just call to share this thing that's going on. If, if, I'm, if something joyful happens in my life, I got somebody I can ring up and say, hey, this thing happened and I'm super excited about it. Most of us don't have that outside of our spouses. Most adults don't have that. Loneliness is on the rise. 
I was looking at a survey from Gallup this past week, and it was comparing numbers from 1990 and from 2020. Of, the survey was about the number of close friends that people have. And it, 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 it's hard to describe because it was like a graph. It was an infographic. So, you know, if you're not a visual learner, I'm sorry. But it asked people, um, how many close friends do you have? And the percentage of men who said they had uh, 10 close friends went from 40% in 1990 to 15 in 2020. The percentage of women went from like 24% down to like 11% between 1990 and 2020. And that that trend held almost exactly the same for all of the lower numbers too. For those who said, I have five close friends, or I have three close friends, or I have one close friend, or I have no close friends, that's the only one that really grew. And the whole point was that we have this kind of epidemic of loneliness. We have this, this cultural situation where people are not as close as they once were. People don't have the same kind of friendships and close ties that they once did. And that's tragic. And what's really sad is that I look at the church and it's no different from the rest of the world. I look within the church and I realize, like, I don't have those kinds of relationships. If I were answering that survey and it said, how many close friends do you have, Brandon? I don't know what my answer would be, but it certainly wouldn't be 10. Probably wouldn't be five. Now, there are some of people in this room who I know and love, but we're not there yet. I want to be there with you, but we're not there yet. And I have this theory that we want these relationships, but we live in a world that is so insecure about our own selves that the, when we begin to move into that space of friendship intimacy with other people, we start to draw back, right? And I think, I think a lot of that is because we just don't know if the other person's thinking the same as we are. And so we're like, I don't want to push I don't want to push too hard. I don't want to drive them away. Like, we're friends now. If I push to get closer to them, maybe they'll pull away because they think I'm weird. And I think most of the time, the person on the other end is probably feeling exactly the same way. Like, I would love that relationship too. I would love the relationship with many of you where we just walk into one another's homes. That kind of intimate relationship, that kind of friendship. The kind of friendship I have with my brother where I know when I get to his house, I just go in through the garage and I announce myself, right? When he shows up at my house for dinner, they just walk on in because we're family. And not just that we're related by blood. Y'all got family members who you would never do that with, right? Y'all got family members who are not friends, right? Our friendship is not based primarily in the blood that we share. It's a relationship that we've built. Now, the blood that we share made it convenient to build that relationship, but you still have to do it. You still have to do the work of building the relationship. And I have a theory that most of us want those kinds of relationships. And that when we get into those places and we begin to really build intimacy with another person, we pull back out of fear of alienating them when, in fact, they want the same thing we want. And if we would both just be honest, like those characters in the movie or those characters in the show, if we would both just go, you know, I really want a deep relationship with you. I want a deep friendship with you. I I want an intimate relationship with you. That if we would be honest about that, we would be able to move forward in our relationships. But we're not. Because we're insecure. Because we're afraid. And I think as adults, you know, we've, we've had all kinds of relationships where we've gotten hurt or we've hurt others. We've had relationships where trust was broken. And so I understand that insecurity. 
I understand where it comes from. It's built on a life of having those relationships let us down or us letting other people down. But the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that, that draws us into him overcomes those insecurities. Ideally, if we find ourselves in Jesus and we're moving closer to him, then we can overcome those insecurities and learn to be vulnerable with one another. Not because we know we'll never hurt one another, but because we know that when we do hurt one another, we've got someone to go to for healing of those hurts. We've got a place to go. My identity is in Christ, not in what you think of me. So that when our friendship breaks down or when we hurt one another or there's distrust or something goes wrong between our relationships, as it inevitably will, my identity is not in what you think of me. It's not in our relationship. Our collective identity is in Jesus Christ. And because of that, he overcomes all the insecurities that we carry. And we can bring forgiveness and we can bring healing and we can bring reconciliation to the hurts in those relationships. So there's no need to be insecure anymore because we know who we are and we know who our God is. We need to approach our friendships like we do our marriages. If your marriage is built on Jesus Christ, you know that your identity is not found in your spouse. You know that to find everything that you are, to bind up everything that you are in your spouse, in this other person who, and what they think of you and, and how they care for you, to bind all that up is not the Christian ideal. In order to be the best spouse I can be, my identity's got to be in Jesus Christ. He's got to be at the center of our relationship. He's got to be at the center of our marriage. And if he's at the center of our marriage, then there's nothing we can't get through. There's nothing we can't walk through. And we got to approach our friendships in exactly the same way. With Jesus Christ at the center, the one who draws us together, the one who brings healing and forgiveness and reconciliation when there is brokenness in our relationship, that's what overcomes our insecurity. Jesus at the center. And my dream for the church is that we are a people who desperately want those intimate, deep relationships with one another, who desperately want to be a family bound by the blood that doesn't flow through our veins, but bound by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is so much stronger than the ties of physical family. Bound by who we are in Jesus, by the family that he has made us. And I think that's what our texts today get to. This text in John and in Hebrews. In John, we read at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word came to earth and was made flesh in order to share the light of God. And then we get to those verses that Terry read for us, where the light was in the world, but the world didn't recognize him. And so the world instead rejected Jesus. But to all who received him and believed on his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Now, there are two levels here of, of relationship that we're talking about. Because you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, aren't we all made in God's image? Aren't we all children of God? Isn't everybody a child of God? And to one extent, you're right. We are all made in the image of God. We are all a human family. And yet there's a way in which the family of God, the family of Jesus Christ, is distinct from everyone else. Because there's a person at the center of our relationships, there's a person at the center of our family that isn't there for the rest of the world. 
And it's he who binds us together and gives us the the resources and the strength to overcome all of the hurt and pain of the relationships that we have. And so the family of God is distinct from the rest of the human family. We are bound together, not simply by our common humanity, not by the blood that flows in our veins, not by any of the ties that the world gives to us. We are bound together by the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We are bound together by his calling. We are bound together by the Holy Spirit of God living in us and living through us. And that makes this Christian family distinct and unique from anything else that exists in the world. It means we have resources that other people don't, emotional and spiritual and mental and physical resources that the rest of the world doesn't. We have a person binding us together who, like I said before, gets to identify us and equip us to overcome all the pains of our relationships. And this is what makes our community unique. We have received Jesus and we have believed on his name. What do those two things mean? So in the context of of John, when he says those who received him, he's just talked about people rejecting Jesus. So receiving Jesus stands in stark contrast to rejecting Jesus. He says the light came into the world, but the people didn't recognize the light, and so they rejected it. And the implication there, if you're reading John's gospel, is that they killed him. Remember, the gospel is written long after the crucifixion of Jesus. Everybody reading this knows the end story. They know that Jesus died. And so implicit in the description of the rejection of Jesus is that they would kill him. But those who received him, They recognized who he was. They recognized the light that he brought. They recognized that he was God come to earth to share this good news that you can be one with him. You can have a relationship with him. You can have your sin forgiven and you can be brought into community with God. And so to receive Jesus is to recognize the source from which he comes. It's to recognize that here is God in the flesh. Here is the one who brings the truth, who brings light into dark places. To receive Jesus is to recognize the authority with which he comes, the source of who he is, and the reason for it. And then to believe is one step further. So I recognize Jesus, and I receive him. I receive the authority on which he comes. I receive his purpose. I receive the the teaching that he has to bring. I receive the light that he wants to bring in. And now I believe. That is, I have pledged myself to him. I've given myself over. There are two ways of understanding the word that we translate believe here. One is to give intellectual assent to. It's to say, yes, I think this is true. But the other way of translating that Greek word behind believe is to talk about allegiance. When I believe on Jesus, I am pledging my allegiance to Jesus. That is, I'm saying I am loyal to him first above anything else. This is why we just finished with Revelation, right? This is why the end of Revelation can talk about the people of God as the bride of Christ. A bride is loyal to her husband before and above anything else. As followers of Jesus, we are loyal to him First, he sets all of our other loyalties and priorities. To believe in Jesus is to say, my loyalty belongs to him before anybody and anything else. And he's the one who orders my steps. He's the one who sets my priorities. And it's only by keeping him at the center and keeping all of my loyalty in him that I can actually become a more loyal husband and father and friend and neighbor. 
It's only by giving all of my love to Jesus that I become a more loving person to the people around me. That I am more gracious. That I am more kind. I am more accepting. Through the exclusive message of Jesus, we become more inclusive and accepting people. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why it's not the bad thing that this is an exclusive message that Jesus has come as God in the flesh to make us what we were always intended to be. And that is holy, God-like, loving, gracious, kind, welcoming, sacrificial people. That's why Jesus has come. And so we have received him. We've recognized his authority. We've recognized the source of Jesus. We've recognized the light that he's come to bring. And we have believed on him. We've pledged our loyalty to him. We've said, yes, Jesus, you have authority over my life. You get to order my steps. I'm loyal to you first and foremost. And you set my other priorities. And so that's what it means to receive Jesus and to believe on his name. And that's what makes the Christian community distinct because of our loyalty to Jesus Christ and to the empowerment of having God live within us because that's what Jesus comes to give us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us and to transform us to make us look more like Jesus in our lives and in our relationships. But Jesus didn't just come to teach us he didn't just come to, to give us words and to, and to kind of say, well, here's your pep talk for the day. Here, go on. Right? Jesus is not a coach in the locker room. Jesus is not one who just comes to give us some inspirational speech and then say, okay, now go out on the field. Jesus does so much more than that. And that's what we get to in Hebrews chapter 2. So starting at verse 9, here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Now think on that for a minute. Think about the irony of that statement. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he died. It is the death of Jesus, it is the weakness of Jesus in his death that gets him the crown and glory and honor that he enjoys. But listen to why he does this. Verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate, entirely appropriate, that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who, sancti who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the ch children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. So there are lots of things going on here, and, and I realize like, just reading through that, it's kind of confusing, it's kind of all over the place, it feels like. But here's what this passage is saying. God wanted a family. 
He wanted you and me united to him as a family. And the only way that he could do that was to send Jesus to suffer as we suffer, to live as we live, so that he could sympathize with us. So we could never look at God and say, God, you know, it's, it's all great that you're nice and holy and you're up there on your throne, detached from all the stuff, but you don't know the crap I got to go through. You don't have any idea the pain that I'm dealing with. God, you have no clue what it's like to live in the dirt and the muck here and to deal with all this drama and all this pain. And God goes, nope, I do. Look at Jesus. No, I walked in your shoes. I dealt with all that stuff and it killed me. I've gone one step further than you. We can never look at God and say, you just have no idea what it's like to be me, God. I mean, there's just no way you could possibly understand or sympathize with all the stuff that I got to deal with because God goes, wait a minute, I dealt with it all and it killed me. I I went through it all and I've experienced death. Have you experienced death yet? No. When you're suffering, when you're in pain and your temptation is to look to God and say, God, why are you doing this to me? You can't possibly understand. God points to the cross. And says, I did suffer for you. And I came through on the other side. When, when you read history, you know, one of the, one of the uh, charges that people level against God is, yeah, okay, Jesus suffered, but he was God, right? So, like, how much is his suffering really worth if he was strong enough to overcome all the stuff? Right, if Jesus was God in the flesh and he had all power and all authority, then it must have been really easy for him to overcome temptation. It must have been really easy for him to deal with all the pain that I deal with. But when you think about, think about when you go to war, two armies are on the battlefield, right? Let's say three armies are on the battlefield, right? And two go to war and one army loses. They get squashed. And then another army comes in and they beat the ones who beat the last army. Who best knows the power of the enemy? The first army that got squashed or the one who beat the enemy? Who best knows the the strength of the enemy? The winner. Right? Those who lost don't know the full power of the enemy because they didn't make it to the end. They didn't experience all the power of the enemy. It's the victorious army that knows and understands just how powerful, just how strong the enemy was. You and I fall to temptation so often, we don't know the real strength of our enemy. We don't know the real strength of temptation. Only Jesus, who overcame every temptation, understands just how strong, just how powerful the temptations are that we face. Only he who actually overcame death understands all of the pain and misery of death. Only he who overcame all the struggles of the world truly understands the power and strength of the suffering that we experience. And so in sending Jesus, God was saying to us, I want to understand what it is to be you. I want to understand what it is to walk in your shoes. I want to be a father who can sit with you in the dirt of the world and say, I I understand. And I'm sorry. And then can empower us to walk through. So imagine you have a brother or a sister grown up with them, close with them, and then at some point in their lives, they just kind of go off the rails, abuse the people around them, reject the family. They end up living, you know, on the street. 
addicted to whatever, just in a mess, in a total mess. You can reject them. You can pretend you don't have a brother or sister. Or you can, in love, go to them. A lot of us would go to that brother or sister in the moment, and we would we'd want to use harsh words. We'd want to set them straight. All too often, what we would want to do is go to them in their brokenness, in their pain, in their misery, and we'd say something like, you know, you brought this on yourself. And if you would just do this, 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 and this, then you'd be back in the good graces of the family. Or if you could just overcome this thing, then you could come back and, and be okay. That's not what God does for us. God comes to us when we're in that exact situation. God comes to us and he sits with us in our pain and our sorrow. And he experiences life in the gutter. And he lifts us up by walking through it with us together. That's what the cross of Jesus is about. That's what the life of Jesus is about. It's about God coming to us when we're in the gutter and not saying you need to straighten up and you need to stop making such stupid decisions with your lives and you need to get things in order. It's God coming into the gutter with us, putting his arm around us and saying, I will walk with you through this. I'm here with you. I love you. And I want to be with you through whatever you're struggling through, whatever you're dealing with. That's what the life of Jesus is about. And that's why he came. And we read here in Hebrews that the reason that he came and walked with us through the gutter is to bind us together as a family. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Though you have rejected me, though you have walked away from me, though you have abused me, though you have tried to ruin your life in every way that you can, I'm still not ashamed to call you my brother and my sister. I want you for my own. I want to walk with you. I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want to accept you. I want to take you in. And so Jesus comes to bind us together as a family, to walk with us through the gutters of the world, to walk with us through the pain of life, to make us brothers and sisters. And the implication of Hebrews is that if Jesus did this for us, then this is what we're to do for one another. If this is the way God has approached you and me, then this is the way we're to approach one another in our pain and in our struggles and in the difficult seasons of our lives. To put our arms around one another we're in the, when we're in the deepest pain, when we're in the deepest places, to put our arms around one another and say, I got this with you. You are not alone. We're not just here to give one another a pep talk. We're not just here to coach one another through the difficulties. We're here to walk hand in hand arm in arm, arms wrapped around one another through whatever comes our way. That's what it means to be the family of God, to walk with one another as Jesus has walked with us, to care for one another the way that Jesus has cared for us. I used to love working at the rescue mission. When clients would come in, I would always advise them that, look, you need a community of people who don't have the same temptations and struggles you do. If, if all of your friends and family in recovery, if everybody that you know is in recovery too, y'all all got the same temptations. So when one person fails, what's going to happen? Right? Inevitably, a whole group is going to go out. And we would see that happen over and over. And so I would, I would advise my clients, look, you need to find a community of people who don't have the same temptations and struggles that you do. 
Not because they're stronger or better than you, but because they're just not tempted by the same stuff you are. And so they're, they're not going to fail with you. They're going to walk with you through the struggles, through the pain. And the only place that I know where you can find a community like that of people who will accept you and love you as you are and walk with you through the struggles is a church. So whether you believe this stuff or not, my advice to you, new clients of mine, is to go to a church. And hey, here are the three or four that I know will do this with you and not reject you outright. Here are safe places that you can go and become embedded in the community who will walk with you through your temptations and struggles with people who don't have the same temptations. And guess what? As you grow in relationship and you don't have the same temptations they do, you get to walk with them and empower them too. You need to become part of a family. And the clients that I had who actually did that almost never failed. Almost never fell again. Not necessarily because there was some magic about it but because they were connected to a family of people who put their arms around them and said, hey, when you're tempted to fall, I got you. We'll be your safety net. We will take care of you. We will walk with you. We will honor you because you are a person made in the image of God. They won't give up on you. That's what we're supposed to be for one another. A community of people who don't all share the same temptations who don't all share the same ideologies and and ideas aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ, a diverse community of people who deal with different stuff, but who all of us together will wrap our arms around one another and say, I've got you through this. I will walk with you. Your home is my home. My home is your home. My children are your children. This is our village. This is our family. We are a community of aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and parents and brothers and sisters and cousins. Dysfunctional in all of our humanity, but bonded together by the blood of Jesus Christ, bonded together by our shared loyalty to our brother Jesus and our Father God and the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us. That's who we are. And that's who we're growing into. I'm excited about this family. And as we go through this series, we're going to be looking at these family values that we have. In a family, we gather together regularly. We're we're always together spending time with one another, both on Sunday mornings and outside of it, in one another's homes, in one another's lives, because you can't build intimate relationships only at some institution every week. you got to be around the dinner table together. As a family, we gather. As a family, we grow together. My job as a parent is to help my children grow up and become functional, gospel-loving, Jesus-following, committed people. We grow together. As a family, then we go and we share these values with people and we, we invite people into our family. We invite people into our home. We expand this family together. That's why we go. And as we go, we've got these values that we're going to be looking into where you belong before you've ever believed. You get to come and be part of this community. Before you ever say, I believe in Jesus, we want to welcome you in and wrap our arms around you and walk with you because that's what Jesus did for us before we ever believed. He was there with arms around us, empowering us to walk. We're a family that's committed to grace and truth. We don't compromise the truth of God. We don't compromise the truths of Scripture. We don't compromise the good news of Jesus, but we walk with grace with one another recognizing that we're all in different places in our walk. We're all in different places with our maturity. But we're going to walk together into truth. This is who we are, people. And this is who we're going to be as a family. 
And it's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that unites us in that family. It's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that reminds us of the suffering that he undertook to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, to stand with us in the gutter and put his arm around us and say, I've got you. I've got you through it all. This is what binds us together. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.